going to continue in 1 Thessalonians. So if you have your scriptures, you can turn there. If not, it'll be on the screen. You go to the New Testament, uh, kind of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Just take a right. It's one of your smaller books as you go a little bit further. Uh, but that's where we'll be today uh, as we continue kind of walking through uh, the whole book of 1 Thessalonians. We'll be in chapter 4 um, this morning kind of want to remind you that Paul is encouraging a young church. It's a new church. It's a young church. Uh, they've already been through so much, and he's encouraging them to do more, right? Um, to excel. We talked about that last week, to be excellent at following God, at following Jesus, uh, to do even more in their uh, spiritual walk and in their uh, following Christ. So he's encouraging them to do that. Last week, we talked about just the super ap applicability of what it means to follow Jesus in our, in our sexual lives. In particular, that was kind of Paul's example last week. Um, and today, he's going to spend some time encouraging them uh, to follow Christ and talk about, you know, what happens when we die? What happens after death? So we'll kind of hear some about that today, um, about the, the, the hope that we have for life and even after um, life. He'll talk about our grieving today and how to grieve um, in a way that honors God. So that's what he's going to do. He's going to encourage them to, to keep on walking and keep maturing. Um, Paul uses, if you took 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, so they're two separate letters written to the same church. If you took all the content from both of those letters and, and put them together, he spends uh, about half of that material um, telling them about false teachers and the end of the world and a lot of other things um, that he felt like were important to them. Um, but here's what I would say, and this is, I think, Paul's point. He's like, mature, excel at following Christ, but Christian maturity is not about knowledge. You can know a lot about Christ and about God and about the church and theology and not be mature, not be a maturing, growing. God's version of maturity isn't equal to knowledge or even a zeal for spiritual things. You can be on fire for God, we can use that language, and not be mature. Those things are not maturity. In God's economy, spiritual maturity, is when we recognize that we are not lined up with God's will. There's something in my life that I'm doing that doesn't line up with God's will. I see that, I recognize that, and I'm going to humbly confess that to the Lord and go to Him and say, God, I am not living the way that you've instructed me. I'm not living my life in a way that pleases you, which we talked about last week, and then asking him for strength. And here is spiritual maturity, doing God's will, doing what God has told us to do. That is spiritual maturity. It's not knowing a lot. It's not really being encouraged and on fire about the things of God. It's knowing what God says and then living according to his ways, living in a way that pleases God. That is spiritual maturity. So maybe we just start the, 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 the morning this morning, and the first question I would ask is, how mature are you? So I'm not asking how excited you are about God. I'm not asking how much you know about God. Ultimately, I'm saying, what do you know about God, and are you living the way God tells you to live? That's the biblical measuring stick for maturity in Christ. Knowing things and then living out those things in our lives. So we'll be in 1 Thessalonians as Paul's going to continue with this encouragement, chapter 4, look in verse 13, uh, just the first two verses here. He says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve, as do the rest, as do the other people who have no hope. 
For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. So they have done so well in following Christ. They're doing such a great job in maturing and living their lives to please God through all kinds of struggles. They've already, we've seen they've, they've been hindered by demonic forces. Their government has turned against them. They're being persecuted actively uh, by the government that, that they live under. Their culture has rejected them. Many of their families have rejected them. And Paul's like, man, you have persevered. You have pushed through. You're doing such a good job in maturing and living for the Lord. And here, he then talks to them about death and eternity and grieving. Why does he bring that up? And I think it's some of the same reasons we need to hear these words of encouragement. First of all, some of them had died, either through persecution or maybe just through the course of human existence. They've had people who have passed away. And the natural question is, what happens next? We've all stood at the graveside of someone we've loved or known and said, well, what, I wonder what happens next. What comes after this? And so they're asking that question. We ask the same question. Their culture, the culture they lived in, really rejected the idea of, of an afterlife. Um, for Greek people or Roman people, um, if there was an afterlife, it was this very shadowy, vague, disembodied, kind of experience um, it would not be anything like what, what you and I are probably thinking about when we think about an afterlife um, and so their, their culture really kind of rejected the idea of an afterlife, a true afterlife and I think our culture oddly enough ironically enough, our culture sort of embraces the idea of an afterlife um, if you poll most people in 21st century America, it's like 80% of them believe, maybe more that something happens after this existence. So we've sort of accepted the idea that there is something that goes on spiritually. But here's where our culture steps in and struggles. Our culture just bristles at the idea that there's one answer, one solution, one way to get ready for that afterlife that centers on what Jesus Christ has done and what you do with Jesus while you're still breathing. That's where our culture breaks down. They, they like the idea that something happens after you die, but when we come to them and say, yes, and that's all dependent on what you've done with Christ while you're still here, that's when they just, they break with us as Christians, right? So their, their culture was struggling with afterlife things. Our culture struggles with that. And then grief. This common, one of the most common human experiences there is, is grief. And I think, strangely enough, with all the answers that Christianity offers us in regards to grieving and death and dying, it also raises some unique problems, doesn't it? Christianity also has something built into it that makes dealing with the afterlife and death and sorrow and loss harder in some ways. And so I think Paul, in this early part of forming sort of Christian theology in these young churches, they're trying to figure out, okay, I'm a Christian and I believe God saved my soul, but what exactly does that mean? and suffering and how do we handle that and this is this place and I can't remember the author that said it but I think it's great for Christians grief is that place where we struggle to bring our faith and our emotions together I think that's a great New Testament biblical definition of grief for a Christian it's that place where we struggle to bring our emotions and our faith together so that they can coexist so grief is this thing that we all still have to, to, to deal with and then I think here's the other 
point, and we're going to come hit this. We're going to hit grief again. We're going to hit uh, this second point again here. I think the other reason they needed to hear it, and you and I need to hear it, is, and I want to say it this strongly, is that, listen, God is God over the grave. He's sovereign over all, or he's not sovereign at all. See? So he is God over the grave. How we die, then the actual dying after death, God's over all of it. He is God over every bit of it. And we've got to know that. And I want to, like, you have to know that. That has to be settled in your soul. That God is God over the grave. And he's God over everything that happens after the grave. That has to be something that we know and that's settled deep inside of us because it's coming for us, y'all. You took another breath, you're, you're a breath closer, right? You understand that? We're not moving away from the grave, we're moving toward the grave. This is coming in some way or another for all of us. And so we have got to get this settled in our hearts and our souls that God is God over the grave and everything associated with it. So Paul's trying to encourage them, and I think he's trying to encourage us with that, that death doesn't defeat God, that death doesn't beat God, that death doesn't confound God. God is God over it all, okay? So I think that's one of the things that we're supposed to also take from this and be encouraged with. Now, the other thing he says here is he's talking about death, and he's talking about losing people, and I'm so glad that he doesn't say this. I'm glad that he doesn't say, you immature baby Christians, stop grieving. Aren't you glad that he doesn't say that? He says, just grieve, but don't grieve like pagans. Grieve, but don't grieve as those who, what, have no hope. Reverse it. Grieve like you have hope. And I'm so glad he doesn't say, don't grieve. Amen? Because I'd be a terrible Christian <laughs> if he was telling us to not grieve. So he doesn't say, don't grieve. Grief is natural. Grief is, grief, grief is necessary, but we can apparently do it. And I want to say this, we can apparently grieve in such a way that we betray a lack of trust in God and that leads us into unfaithfulness and hopelessness. We can grieve in such a way that we actually betray what's true in our hearts, which is I don't really trust God with this. And that can lead us to living unfaithfully and living hopelessly. What you believe changes how you live. Belief precedes behavior. What you believe changes how you live. So what do you believe about, and I'm just going to throw some stuff out there, because I don't think there's anything that this is not true. There's no category of your life that what I just said, I don't think it's true. What do you believe about nicotine? What do you believe about nicotine will change the way you live. What do you believe about sex? What do you believe about your friends? What do you believe about family? Here, in this text, the question is, what do you believe about Jesus? If you believe that Jesus really conquered death, if you believe that he conquered the cause of death, if you believe that Jesus conquered the grave, if you believe that Jesus is life, not the way to life, y'all, he is life, if you believe he is life and everyone who believes in him will never ultimately die, that changes how you live and how you face death. What you believe changes how you behave. It dictates how you behave. So Paul's confronting them here at this point, not in an ugly way, but in a very positive way. Hey, listen, I know some of you have died or some of you have experienced death and you've lost loved ones. 
what do you believe about death? What do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about what he did on the cross? What do you believe about what he said he was here to do and what he's accomplished after the grave for you and on the cross? So he doesn't say don't grieve, but he does say do it in a way that honors God and brings hope to you and to people in your life. Look at verse 15. We're going to come back to those. We're going to really, really, really dig into that in just a moment. I want to go through the text first. Verse 15, he says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. I want to point out that he's used the word sleep or asleep for believers three times in these three verses. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall be always with the Lord. Here's what I want to tell us, because since the 70s, in particular, we've kind of gone a really different way with this as evangelical Christians. God is more concerned with your character and your comfort than he is with your calendar. So you can have charts, and you may have the John Hagee study Bible, and you've got the wall chart, and you bought it all, right? Great for you, okay? God's not beholden to your chart or your calendar. And he's not even, gosh, y'all, just wrap your brains around it. If he was interested in a date, don't you think he would have given it to her? God's not about hide and play. I think some of us think God's playing hide and seek with us about stuff, you know? That he's intentionally obscuring things so that we have to get all super curious about stuff that at the end of the day doesn't matter, and I'll say it that strongly. Now, next week you're going to, well, if it doesn't matter, read chapter 5. We're going to get into chapter 5 next week, okay? I'm going to tell you that it doesn't matter. What's the point? God wants you to look like Jesus. And he wants you to know that if you die before he comes back, there's hope for you. That's, he's interested in your character and your comfort. Okay? So we've got to kind of keep, when I go through this text the next week, you've got to kind of have that in your head. That's the point of 1 Thessalonians. The point of 1 Thessalonians is not to give you a chart. The point of 1 Thessalonians is to say, life happens and it's hard and you are following Christ. Keep following Christ. Even when death comes. Even when the darkest day comes, pursue maturity in Jesus Christ and be comforted by who Christ is and what he's done for us. That's the point, so that's what we're really going to drill down into here. So the first thing he says, or one of the first things that I really latched onto here, is that he's like, okay, at the end of time, people have died and there's other people who are alive and he's going to raise people from the dead and those of us who are alive and, and when Jesus comes back, we're going to meet him in the air somehow. I don't even understand that kind of a deal, right? But we meet him somehow in the air. The thing that really leapt out at me here is that he says that it's Jesus who comes for us. It's Jesus who comes for us. So here's the thing. There's, there's about to be a big wedding, and, and the groom doesn't send his messenger. He comes. He doesn't send his lackey or his best man to come say, hey, go tell my people it's time. He comes to get his bride. Jesus himself is the one who comes for us. And it says that he comes with a shout. And I do wonder what that is. Like, what does Jesus shout? What makes the God of creation shout? Because he speaks and worlds come into existence. Think about that. So when he shouts, what happens? You know? He comes with a shout and he's like, hey, wake up, right? Surprise, hey, you know? Rise up. Come up here. Come to me. 
arise. Think about like, La I always get the Lazarus picture in my head. Lazarus, come forth. Is that what he says, man? And we just, we go. We go. Believers that died in shipwrecks and rotted on the bottom of the sea, God reconstitutes their atoms and they meet him in the sky. And those of us that are here alive, breathing when he comes, we just suck up out of the world and we meet him somewhere. And it's Jesus himself. So we don't get there and go, hey, Michael, nice to meet you. Where's Jesus? I'm so glad that you sent James. I mean, it's Jesus himself comes for his bride. And he calls us out of this world to come and meet with him. There is a trumpet sound. Amen, right? There's a trumpet sound to announce his arrival. I don't have time to get into this, but if you're a Jewish person, you're like, there should be a trumpet. Because trumpets, every major festival in the Old Testament was accompanied with a trumpet sound. Some kind of an instrument that was like, wake up, it's time to party. It's time to celebrate. And so that's the idea. Jesus comes back, and yes, there's judgment, and it's awful. Read Revelation. There's terrible things that start to happen. But for believers, guys, this is it. We go home. We go with Jesus, right? And he blows a trumpet, and the party starts, okay? A lot of things we can debate about what happens between there and there, but there's great, amazing things that happen for us. And this is one of our great comforts that Jesus comes for us. He uses that word asleep several times. Now, when he uses that word, he's not talking about our bodies. I mean, he is talking about our bodies. He's not talking about our spirits. When a person's dead, it looks like they're asleep. And for Christians, that's absolutely true. Your body is sleeping, not your spirit. There's other texts that talk about what happens to our spirit, and it talks about it in this text that those who have already died are with Christ, and they come back with him. So our spirits aren't just disembodied, wandering around the earth. Our, our spirits go to be with God, with Christ, and he brings them back to somehow rejoin them with our bodies. We trade them for a new model, and we're good to go for eternity, okay? So he says, you're asleep. He's talking about our bodies, but not our spirits. Sleep is used here three times, and he says it's for those who are in Christ. In the New Testament, anytime that phrase is, is, is used about death, it always refers to Christians, those who are in Christ, never of unbelievers. Unbelievers don't sleep. They die, and listen, they die forever. Which we'll talk about in just a moment. We sleep. They go on to die an eternal death. So scripture uses this word sleep about followers of Christ exclusively. And then it says this, and I love this, it's the end of verse 17. Now remember, why is Paul writing this at all? Not to fill up our calendars, to comfort us. Right? I want you to be comforted. Don't grieve like you don't have any hope. What's the great comfort that he gives here at the end of verse 17? You will always be with the Lord. That's the great comfort. Now here's what's awesome. Some of you are right now yawning and barely staying awake because the idea of being with God doesn't throw your soul forever. So we're like, that's the payoff? That's the deal? He forgives me of my sins, and heaven is, I get to be with God forever? Kind of was hoping there'd be some bluebell involved, right? Some really good Mexican food. He says this, be with the Lord forever. And he also says this, he kind of throws this in. Those who have preceded you in death in the Lord will come back with him. Good news. I get to see my granny again. I haven't seen my granny since I was 21. I get to see my granny again. I get to see my dad again. 
I get to see a baby that I never met. I get to see people who've preceded me in the Lord, and he's going to bring them back with him. That's amazing. The physical, real presence of Jesus, I always get to be with Jesus. Comfort one another with these words. You will always be with the Lord. We will always be with him. We will never doubt where he is. We will never wonder if he's forgotten us or if he's near to us. We sing songs like, your presence is heaven to me. Yeah, it is, and it will be physically. In reality, his presence, we have psalms where it says, your nearness is good to my soul. Then we have one of our most famous songs. What is it? How does the end of Psalms 23? I will dwell where? In the presence of the Lord forever. That's the big payoff in Psalm 23, too. Is God, is Jesus your greatest good? Is he your greatest pleasure? Is he your greatest dream? Is he your greatest aspiration? When Mindy and I were engaged, I spent some summers working in Tucson. We were in, living in Dallas and spent some summers in Tucson. The toughest one was the one we were engaged. And I was gone from May, end of May, till the middle of August. And man, I could not wait for August the 15th to come, the day that I got to drive home for 18 hours because I knew I'd get to be with Mindy. And at the time, it was like the greatest thing I could imagine. I got to be with Mindy again. That was the payoff of driving home through the desert in August. I get to go home and I got to be with Mindy. I could not wait until that happened. And then I think about the kids. When both of the kids were born, they were both planned births. So Jordan was born August 23rd. Jim was born August, uh, April the 18th. On those days, I couldn't wait to be with them. It was the greatest thing I could think of. The greatest thing I could think of was I got to be with these new little babies. It used to be that Super Bowl Sunday was the greatest day of the year. That's been 24 years now. So now, the best day of the year is just kickoff Sunday when everybody gets to go to the Super Bowl, right? So first Sunday of the year, can't wait for that. I get to hang out with my boys. Listen, those are just sad foretastes of what it means to be with Jesus forever. Do you understand what I'm talking about? That you should be comforted by this truth, quite frankly, by this theology. You should be comforted by this great biblical doctrine that you will die, and God is over that. That you will be buried, and Jesus is Lord over that. And you will immediately go to where God is, and your body gets traded in for a new one, and you get to be with God forever, forever. And he will satisfy your soul like no other relationship and no other person could ever do. Man, I, I think, I'm going to say this now. I wanna th I'll throw this in there, man. Listen, I think part of the grieving process here when we lose people and things here, I really, really, really believe it's part of God's way of cutting our heartstrings of the things of this world. We're so tied here. We think this is the best. We actually have, we entertain thoughts of what the perfect life would be. And it always centers around things and people here. And God's like, I need to divest you of that. Because I'm the greatest thing that your soul could ever need. And it's hard. This is a painful process for us to go through. But when we worship the gift instead of the giver, this is what we must do. Amen? 
We've got to cut those strings so that our attention and our heart's affection is given to the God who deserves it more than anything else. And grieving is part of that process. Your theology matters. It matters. What you believe matters. Listen, verse 18, he says this, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Good theology is always practical theology. Always. Jesus died, and he rose again for you, and you've accepted that, and you've submitted to his rule over area of your, every area of your life. That's good theology. What does that mean? This is just 1 Thessalonians. This is just the stuff we've talked about. What does it mean to follow Christ? Practically, live every day to please God. Run after, chase after holiness in every detail of your life. Chase after it. It's not chasing after you. <laughs> you have to chase it. Love, support, and encourage other Christians even better than you do now. Daily, everything you do, your tasks are worth being done with excellence and humility and service to God and other people because there's a world that's watching you. And they want to see what it means to follow Christ. Live and die knowing that Jesus has defeated all of it and is preparing a place for you. And he has secured that and you will live with God forever. That is daily practical theology. Good theology is practical theology. Stuff that you can live out on a daily basis. You can take it and apply it to your life and your thoughts and your dreams and your feelings and every other part of your life. This, to me, is one of the greatest truths of Christianity. One of the most practical things that we can take and use in comfort in our lives. This fragile, sin-riddled body and mind is not the end of my existence. So the theology that we see here is for our information, which is for our mind, our comfort, which is our emotions, our daily trust, our faith. That's good theology. And this is great stuff. And he says, comfort one another with these words. Don't just know it. Don't be able to spout out good theology. Comfort one another. Apply these things to your life on a daily basis. I want to take a step back and talk a little bit about grief with the time that we have left today. What do we do with grief? It does. It, re it, it introduces some difficult things even within our Christian faith, our Christian theology. faces some real struggles when we think about loss and death and dying and grieving. So what do we do with it? You know, I would say this, and I want to be careful that we don't beat ourselves up too much, but I would say this, as a culture and as a Christian culture, 21st century American Christians, we don't do grief very well. Death is still scary to us. And it's really been sanitized and kind of cut out. We don't have rituals in our culture that help us deal with grief anymore. And because of that, even as Christians, this gets really hard. And we don't know what to do with it when it comes our way. Or it comes the way of somebody that we love. Quickly, Kay, Kay Warren, um, Rick Warren, you may know him better. Um, Purpose Driven Life, okay? Sold millions and millions of copies. They're in a church, Saddleback Church in California. Been there for decades now, pastoring. April 5th, 2000, 2000, 2013, their adult son, Matthew, took his life. After years of struggling with depression. I'm not going to, I'm going to tell you some of Kay's story. She shared it. And I want to just tell you some things about some of our holes in our Christian theology about grief, okay? This 
a year later, she says, I am shocked at some of the statements that people have told me that I need to move on. They want the old Rick and Kay back. And she said, let me tell you, the old Rick and Kay are gone forever. She said, I wasn't receiving this well. People are encouraging me, they think, and they're telling me to move on or be thankful for what you have. And she's like, I'm really, it's not sitting well with me, and I'm struggling. And so I'm thinking, man, maybe I'm not grieving very well. She says, we moved from a culture where it was expected to mourn for at least a year to a culture that expects us to move on quickly, to think of the positive, to be grateful for what you have. She says, quote, what does this say about, the, about us other than we're terribly uncomfortable with death, with grief, and with mourning? Or we're so self-absorbed that we easily forget the profound suffering the loss of a loved one creates. So she's like, listen, when you're talking to somebody who's lost somebody, you need to forget things like, how are you doing? She's like, because you don't want me to tell you, and I probably couldn't tell you anyway. So I just say, fine, so we can both move on. So she's like, forget asking me how you're doing and stick to things, simple statements like, I am sorry for your loss. I am praying for you and your family. I love you. And she says, if you're really close to somebody who's grieving, like a really good friend, you go to them and you say, you don't ever have to say anything at all. I'm just with you in this. She says, quote, don't overtell somebody to be grateful for what they have until you've had a chance to mourn Sorry, till they've had a chance to mourn what they've lost. It will take longer than you think is reasonable, rational, or even right. But that's okay. True friends love at all times. And brothers and sisters are born for, a t for help in a time of need. The truest friends and helpers are, helpers are those who wait for the griever to emerge from the darkness that swallowed them alive without growing afraid, anxious, or impatient. They don't pressure their friend to be the old, familiar person they're used to. They're willing to accept that things are different, to embrace the now, the scarred one that they still love. And they are confident that their compassionate, non-demanding response and presence is the surest expression of God's mercy for their suffering friends. We really struggle with this. This is really hard for us. And I think a lot of times it's that it's more uncomfortable for us to know what to do or say. And then some of our Christian theology creeps in and it comes out really badly in how we say it to people. We don't do grieving very well. I want to go back to this and say in chapter 1, verse 10, chapter 4, verse 14, Christ is Lord over everything, not just the grave and the dying experience, but your grief too. He is Lord over your grief. I'm so glad, again, that this doesn't say don't grieve. I think the biblical model for grieving is to give full expression to your grief. I'm so glad the Psalms are in the Bible. And I'm so glad Lamentations is in the Bible. There is some ugly stuff if you read it and let it say what it says in those books. If you feel alone or forsaken or abandoned by God, if you're worn out by life and you don't want to go on and you've lost the will to go on, tell God. Talk to God about it. A, he's not surprised. You're not going to tell him something he didn't know. 
two, he loves you anyway. You're hurting and you don't want to get up and do another day. He knows and he loves you. Grieve fully and give it to God. Cry out with the author. This is Lamentations chapter 3. My soul is empty of peace. It's bereft of peace. Listen, I have forgotten what happiness is. And so I say my endurance has perished and so has my hope from the Lord. That's gut level honest grieving. That kind of raw honesty, listen, that's not disrespectful. I think it's more disrespectful when I'm dying inside and I come to God with pretend words and I say things I don't mean. I think that's much more disrespectful than coming to him and saying, God, this hurts and I don't know how to get up. There's something exceptionally faithful about going to God when you hurt like that. And I think God honors that. I think it honors the Lord when I go to him with that kind of pain and I'm raw and real about it. I told myself yesterday I wasn't going to cry. I'm sorry. I want to also remind you that in the middle of this text of Lamentations, when everything's falling apart, is this. And this is preaching the gospel to yourself. He says, this I recall to my mind. This is Jeremiah writing, by the way. He says, therefore, this I call to my mind. And he says, therefore, I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will have hope in him. In the middle of my grief and raw grieving with the Lord, I'm reminded, and I have to preach the gospel to myself. God is good. God is Lord over all. He has a plan for me and for you that includes this. Even this. And I have to preach that hope to myself. Just like we see in Lamentations. I just can't get away from this text. I can't get away from the hope that I see here. There's great hope here. Even in the tears, there is great hope here. It's not a wishful hope. It's a hope that is anchored in Christ. It's already been accomplished in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So here's the deal. If you're a believer, if you follow Jesus Christ, you cannot allow Jesus' death and resurrection to be merely a spiritual event because if it's merely a spiritual event, you have no hope for your body and your soul at the end of time. It has to be an actual historical event. So because we believe that Jesus factually, actually, historically rose from the dead, body and soul, you and I have comfort and hope that so will we. So there is actual hope here for us, for our futures. Now some of you, I would say, you're here this morning and you're like me, you're crying some tears about a loss, some kind of grief that you have, and you don't have any hope. My, my tears are, I can tell you, I know that they're anchored in the Father who bottles up my tears and holds them as precious and will comfort me one day and wipe away my tears. Some of you cry tears and you don't have hope. You know things about God. 
and you know things about Jesus and you know things about church, but you don't have this anchored hope because it's not about knowledge. It's not about knowing. It's about believing and trusting and placing your entire existence on. Jesus has accomplished it all. And he is Lord over all. And what he's done on the cross is more than sufficient. Your soul and your body for eternity. Our hope is not here. Our hope isn't in your, our paychecks or our job security or our retirement funds or the good works that we do here or enjoying this life. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. This isn't the cake. This is the icing on the cake, guys. We've reversed it. When we make our hope here now, when my hope is in my kids are going to turn up good someday, when my hope is I'm going to have enough money to retire someday, when my hope is I'm going to buy that second house someday, I'm going to get the job I want someday, when my hope is here and now and in these people, at the end of it all, you are left with this sad suspicion that you missed something. Somewhere in the back of your heart, there's this gnawing voice that's like, you missed it. You got what you wanted and you still missed it. I was reading an article by a lost person talking about a believer, Christian Donald Miller. Some of you may have read some of his books. They were interviewing Donald Miller. So from a non-Christian perspective, this person was commentating a journalist on the Christian world, and they said, the vast majority of Christian books that you buy in Christian bookstores now, 70% of them are what this person called Christian self-help books, which makes me laugh hilariously inside, and I think God too. Because listen, in the back, in the epilogue, maybe unwritten, of every Christian self-help book, it should say this. I was chasing after the wrong things, and I was left more hopeless than when I wrote this book. And then it should say, read Ecclesiastes. <laughs> there is real hope for us rooted in the work of God, established for us and given to us through the love of Jesus Christ. God's love for you is greater than your darkest darkness. God's love for you is greater than your worst day, greater than your worst season. God's love for you is greater than any sickness or dying or death or the grave. And the love that God has for you ensures that God will preserve your soul and that you will see Jesus and you'll be reunited with, people, reunited with people that you love. God's love makes sure that that happens. Our hope extends beyond the grave and our hope is rooted in the person of Christ. I want to say this again. Jesus died so that you and I can have the opportunity to just fall asleep. He died so that death would be a portal into eternity for us not a destination. How do you explain that? That's such a hard concept. I would say it this way, kind of marry some biblical ideas. This is great. Some of you have read some older writings, Donald Gray Barnhouse, great Christian teacher, writer. His first wife died. They had children. They're driving home from her funeral. And one of the kids, they were younger, said, Daddy, I don't understand. Where did Mommy go? I don't understand what it means that she died. Barnhouse was trying to figure out 
how to explain death to his children when just then a large truck passed by and cast a shadow over the car. He looked back to the kids and he said, kid, would you have rather been hit by that truck or by the shadow? Well, of course, they would have rather been hit by the shadow because the shadow doesn't hurt. It just darkens things for a moment. Then in his own wisdom, Barnhouse said these words, kids, when you die without Christ, you're hit by the truck. When you die with Christ, you're only hit by the shadow. The shadow is all you get. Amen? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, the shadow. Death doesn't own me. Death's been defeated. 1 Corinthians. This is what's at stake for us right now. This is the hope that we have. And I want to kind of throw this out, man. Somebody needs to really hear this today. You need to really hear what I'm saying to you today. No matter what you think somebody else might think of you, or what other doubts or questions you may have about God or Christ, no matter what struggles you're facing today, your body's either going to sleep or you're going to die forever based on what you do with Jesus Christ now. That is the choice. That's the great hope that's placed before us in this text. What do you believe about Jesus? You believe certain things about Jesus and you've trusted in those things, then there are things that come your way, which is hope for an eternity with him. If you don't trust in Christ, you don't have that hope. Your end is death forever in this place called hell. That is the choice that's being laid out in front of us today. Now listen, comfort one another with these words. Don't grieve as those who have no hope. We have hope, and it's based in Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's bow our heads, guys. Father, we thank you for this word of hope. We thank you, Lord, that this world that we live in where we do cry and we weep and we mourn and we hurt, that this is not it for us. This is not the all of existence, the sum of existence for us, God. This isn't it. And there's going to be a day, Lord, when we don't grieve anymore. And it's because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross, God. Thank you for these words that give us hope for eternity. Hope for our bodies, hope for our souls, Lord. We are so amazingly grateful, overwhelmed by your goodness. Father, I just pray for my, myself and my brothers and my sisters here who grieve. There's something we're grieving First of all, I pray for comfort, and I pray I've not done or said anything that's been harsh or cold or mean. Father, I pray that they would right now experience the warmth of the Holy Spirit, and that they wouldn't fight it. Sometimes we want to be bitter and show you how mad we are. God, I pray that right now the Holy Spirit would just wrap his arms around people who are hurting and grieving in our room today, in our church, and they would receive that. They'd be comforted right now by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. They would know that it's safe, it's okay, that you invite us to come and yell and scream and cry and be inconsolable, that all that's okay. And they would find that freedom in Jesus. And God, you would give them the strength to get up today, take a breath, take the next step, see everything through that filter that they need to see it through, but have hope, give us hope in Jesus Christ. God, for those who don't know you, this is not a comforting message. This should be terrifying. Father, I pray anyone in this room who hasn't reached out to Jesus and said, save me from my sins, give me this hope for eternity, be the Lord of my life, they'd do it now. We're not playing a game and you weren't either. This is so serious, God. I pray that you would save someone right now. Convict them.
save them. One of the things we do as a church, the church, is communion. And it's a look back. We're looking back at the cross. Uh, we're looking back at what Jesus has accomplished already for us. We're celebrating that. But you know, one of the curious things that Jesus said is, take this, drink this, eat this, until I come. Because there's going to be a day I don't need to be comforted. There's going to be a day I don't need to remember. Right? There's going to be a day I don't need to proclaim the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. He'll be with us. Amen? So we also take the Lord's Supper to look ahead, to look to that day when Jesus comes back for us. So I want to do that, the Lord's Supper, so our guys can come now and whoever's helping us serve today. They're going to come and they're going to pass the plates to you today. Just take it and hold it. We're going to take it together. And I want us to do that. I want us to look back and say, Jesus, thank you. But I also want to look ahead and tell him, thank you. I have hope. Amen? And I'm going to see you someday. And you're going to make all this better. And you're going to take away my grief. And you're going to reunite me with my loved ones. And I get to be with you forever. Amen? So until he comes, we'll take the Lord's Supper. Amen? So they're going to come and pass. We're going to have some worship going on. Then we'll take the Lord's Supper together in just a moment, okay? Room enough for all We're no longer cursed, no longer lost We've been made as children By election and by blood Which draws us here together Every pilgrim, every prodigal, every wayward son will find all that's worth finding as he gazed upon the ones who took on flesh, became the land, and bridged the gap for God and man, joined us here together. Of a vast eternity, a beam of hope from heaven down the dust. His love is spanned the distance as far as west or from the east, and joins us here together at the cross. And every pilgrim, every particle, and every wayward stone. Find all that's worth finding as he gazed upon the one who took on flesh, became the lamb, and bridged the gap. God and man joins us here together.
so would have been on that last night with Jesus and his disciples, and they're looking ahead to the cross. We look back at it, and he would have said, this is my body. He would take that loaf of bread and tore it off, right? This is my body that's broken for you because of your sinfulness. I'm making a way for you to get to God, for you to have hope for eternity. Every time you do this, remember me. And here's what I like to say. He said, until I come. So you say, let's all say it together, until he comes. Until he comes. Same night he held up the, the wine, the goblet. So this is my blood. This is the pathway that opens the door between you and God. Because I bleed for you, take away your sins, and I cover your sins with my blood. Every time you drink this, remember me. Till he comes. Till he comes. Father, we're so grateful that we have this hope that spans eternity. That when Jesus came and died, and made a way for us to have hope for eternity, God. Till you come, we worship you. And until you come, we remember the great gift you've given us through Jesus. And until you come, God, we hold on to hope. We grieve in a way that honors you. God, fill us up with the hope that comes through Jesus. Would you stand to your feet?